Hi ho, it's Chad here. So, The Muppet Show is now on Disney+, and I wanted to take a minute to talk about what we've got, what we don't have, things like that. First of all, for the first time ever, we have all five seasons of The Muppet Show available commercially. Seasons four and five, of course, never have been before. So that's great. They also look fantastic. They're all in high definition. These episodes look way better than they ever have, and definitely better than they would have watching them on your 11-inch tube television 45 years ago. So that's great. They sound great. They look great. Awesome. They also contain, at least from what I can tell so far, the UK spots, which is great. We weren't sure about that. When they aired The Muppet Show in the 90s on Nickelodeon, no UK spots. On DVDs, the UK spots. So we weren't sure if we were getting them, but here they are. And now for the not-so-good stuff. 12 episodes are missing pieces. Now, I don't have the full list in front of me. I'm sure they have it on the Muppet Wiki. But it sounds like these pieces, just a minute here and a minute there, are cuts that were made because Disney couldn't clear the rights for one particular song or whatnot. This is a little frustrating, except the DVDs did this too. If you'll recall when we watched the Jim Neighbors episode, it didn't have his big singing piece, uh, Gone with the Wind, on the DVD. But it is on Disney+. Plus. But there are going to be pieces on the DVDs that are not on Disney Plus now. It's a rights thing. There's nothing Disney can do about that if they couldn't clear the rights. But 12 little tweaks to 118 episodes is really nothing, guys. Did I say 118? Yes, I did. Because two episodes of The Muppet Show are not on Disney Plus. The first one was a no-brainer. Episode 519 with Chris Langham. Chris was a writer on The Muppet Show who stepped in to guest star when Richard Pryor bailed out at the last minute. Unfortunately, later in life, Chris would be charged with possession of child pornography and would spend time as a registered sex offender. So that omission was expected and warranted, and I completely support that. The other one's the heartbreaker, though. Episode 506, Brooke Shields. Such a good episode. It's the Alice in Wonderland episode. It's funny. It's got great songs, great performances. And it's got one of my favorite Muppet things ever, which is Scooter fighting the Jabberwocky. He took his vorpal sword in hand. Long time the manxome foe he sought. So rested he by the tum-tum tree and stood a while and thought. Hmm. And as enoughish thought he stood... It also, however, has several references to the Wizard of Oz, including a moment where they sing, we're off to see the wizard. Now, it turns out that the Wizard of Oz, which was an MGM musical, is one of the like three or four things Disney doesn't own in 2021. So at least for now, that episode is not available. They have indicated that they're still working on it. And hopefully by the time Nick and I get there, the episode will be up. Either way, that's not going to stop us from watching or reviewing it for this show, but that's where we stand. Three of the episodes we've covered so far have been labeled TVPG for tobacco use. Those are the Rita Moreno, Joel Gray, and Peter Ustinoff episodes. Totally fair. Disney has also put on cultural content warnings. They've been doing this with some of their stuff, and two of the season one episodes get these warnings, and I'm going to read this warning. I'm going to read Disney's words. So um, we're clear about what they're saying. This program includes negative depictions and or mistreatment of people or cultures. These stereotypes were wrong then and are wrong now. Rather than remove this content, we want to acknowledge its harmful impact, learn from it, and spark conversation to create a more inclusive future together. And that's what Nick and I have been kind of saying, right? Understand that it was wrong then, it's wrong now, but what's acceptable changes. Learn from it and move forward. The two episodes that we have watched that have this warning are the Joel Grey episode, I believe for the Pafalafaga number, for its depictions of a, a Turkish person, and, and, and maybe also the kind of the, the little bit of trans gay phobia going on with it. And then the Jim Neighbors episode for the very small Wayne and Wanda sketch Indian love call that features a Native American very briefly in traditional Native American garb. We talked about that one too. It didn't offend us as much as the Pafalafaga did, but we did notice it. So I'm surprised the Ustinov episode didn't get one, honestly, because of the impressions he did of uh, Asian people in the Muppet Labs sketch. But I think Disney has it, you know, pretty right on with those. All in all, something to be really happy about. Seems like a lot of people have been watching the show this week. 
I'd love to see the Brooke Shields episode get back up there. <laughs> like I really would. It's so good. But it's hard to complain when 118 episodes of The Muppet Show were dropped into my lap in glorious high definition. There are some people out there trying to make the content warnings a political thing. Shut up. If you are an elected official and you felt the need to tweet out your outrage that a couple of episodes in The Muppet Show have a little bit of a warning to say, hey, this has a racist joke that was okay in 1976 but is not okay now, shut up and go do your job, Jim Jordan. Go do your job, you hacks. No one who actually cares about this show or cares about people are upset about these tiny little content warnings which disappear after you see them and you never have to see them again. Shut up. Anyway, enjoy this bonus episode. Nick and I will be back with Bruce Forsyth and Sandy Duncan. Hello there. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, Kerm. And, uh, uh, yeah, well, how do you do? It's uh, nice to be here, you know. Uh-huh. And uh, hello out there in TV land. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but he's, he's, his whole body has changed a great deal since, uh, you know, the early one. Why did it change? Uh, is it a matter of diet or what is uh, it? Yeah, that... well, it's uh, not, not really diet, no. Uh-huh. It's a matter of uh, progressing, you know, in the uh, direction of, uh, you know, better looking uh, frogs, I suppose. You know, like Hard to tell where Kermit leaves off and you begin. Yes, I've noticed that, too. <laughs> Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my, just kidding, no Nick Jackson today, because this is a bonus episode. I'm here all on my lonesome. Before we get started, please check us out on social media, at Lunatic Daring, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, lunaticdaring.com, where you can find the latest episodes our bibliography, and our watch list, which will include what I'm talking about tonight. What am I talking about tonight? Tonight, I'm talking about the Thanksgiving in 1971 when Dick Cavett had the Muppets on for the full 90 minutes. I'm a little late on this one. I'd hope to get it out earlier. But, you know, plagues, insurrections, having kids, like, all these things can distract you from doing the things you actually want to do. (laughs) I love my girls very much. So uh, I'm going to break down this really kind of cool, unique episode of television and uh, come along with me. It'll be a lot of fun. Let's do it. The first television talk show or chat show, if you come from that side of the pond, is widely regarded to be the Joe Franklin Show, which debuted in January 1951 on WABC-TV, New York's ABC affiliate. The show ran for 43 years on only two networks, and Franklin was listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the longest-running, continuous, on-air talk show host. NBC's The Tonight Show came around in 1954, hosted by comedian and radio personality Steve Allen. Then came Jack Parr, and and then Johnny Carson. There are two main breeds of American talk show, daytime and late night. They could be network, cable, syndicated, or now even streaming. They could be hour-long chats with interesting people in minds, or they could be tabloid freak shows that settle paternity suits. Chris, you are not the father. They could be about politics, entertainment, culture, and sometimes they're just about a talking dog looking for someone for me to poop on. Daytime, of course, was dominated by one name from 1986 to 2011, and that name was Oprah. But also don't forget Phil Donahue, Sally Jesse Raphael, Geraldo Rivera, before he went MAGA, nutjob, Ricky Lake, Montel Williams, Wendy Williams, Rosie O'Donnell, and uh, Ellen DeGeneres. But we don't like to talk about her these days because apparently she's a giant... Oh, and don't forget Maury Povich and Jerry Springer. How could you? Late night talk shows tend to be a little more prestigious. Every time an established show changes hosts, it becomes news. And we all hope, to use a phrase we've been hearing too much lately, for a peaceful transfer of power. But it doesn't always happen. The gold standard for so long was Johnny Carson, whose 30 years at 11.30 on The Tonight Show netted him six Emmy Awards, a Peabody, and launched the career of many weird and wild comedians and other performers. And now, 
now, ladies and gentlemen, here's Johnny. Everybody watched Carson. Like, everybody. They just did. Challengers came and challengers went, but Ed and Johnny never broke a sweat. In 1982, former Indianapolis weatherman David Letterman came around with Late Night with David Letterman. It aired after Carson on NBC, 12.30 to 1.30. And Dave brought to that a more modern, subversive style of comedy, more suited for the type of people that would be up so late at night that it was already tomorrow. Let's do our uh, top ten list, and then we'll get to tonight's uh, viewer mail before we begin the big show. Uh, this comes to us, as always, from the home office in Scottsdale, Arizona. Here we go. Top ten terrifying things that come to you as you're falling asleep. You know, Paul, just before you nod off, uh, a thought will fra- flash across Sometimes your mind. That and, happens, yeah. yeah, and it can keep you up for days if yeah. it's uh, the appropriate thought. Here we have the top ten terrifying thoughts that come to you as you're falling asleep. Number ten. What if there are other Stallone brothers? Number nine. Letterman would leave NBC in 1993 after not being given the Tonight Show gig after Carson's retirement and relocated to CBS, where he would host The Late Show, now at 11.30, going head-to-head with the man who beat him for The Tonight Show job, Jay Leno. For that whole story, read Late Shift, Letterman, Leno, and the Network Battle for the Night by Bill Carter. It's my opinion, and it's hardly a novel one, that Letterman is the most influential late-night host of the whole bunch, because those that came after him were far more acolytes of Dave than of Johnny. Some of them made it, some of them didn't. Arsenio Hall, Jay Leno, Conan O'Brien, Jimmy Fallon, Byron Allen, Seth Meyers, Carson Daly, Craig Kilborn, Trevor Noah, Craig Ferguson, Tom Snyder, John Stewart, Stephen Colbert, James Corden, Jimmy Kimmel, Magic Johnson, remember that? Bill Maher, Joan Rivers, W. Kamal Bell, Wanda Sykes, Charlie Rose, Tavis Smiley, Byron Allen, Dennis Miller, Whoopi Goldberg, Keenan Ivory Wayans, and... Tonight, not one, but two Academy Award-winning actresses, Goldie Hawn and Whoopi Goldberg. Tom Scott and the NBC Orchestra. Not ready for prime time, Chevy Chase. Yeah, Chevy Chase. Uh, please, please, if I knew you were going to be this enthusiastic, I would rehearse. In 1960, 23-year-old Nebraska native Robert Alva Cavett, dick to his friends, was working as a gopher at Time Magazine in New York. Yeah, I'll go for coffee, I'll go for sandwiches, I'll go for anything in here. He had studied drama at Yale and was a skilled stage magician and used to hang around the back doors of Broadway shows, sometimes with a copy of, like, Variety tucked under his arm to make it look like he belonged there. He had dreams of being in show business, but he was currently just a copy boy at one of the largest magazines in the world. One day, Dick saw an article about Jack Parr, the current host of The Tonight Show, in which the comedian lamented how difficult it was to find good monologue material. Looking for any chance he could get, he wrote some jokes and took them himself to the RCA building, where he ran into Parr in the hallway and gave him the envelope of material he had written. That's crazy to me. Things were different back then, folks, but still, that's crazy. And then Cavett stayed and watched the show and was thrilled to hear that Parr had worked a few of his lines into the opening monologue. He was quickly hired as a talent coordinator for The Tonight Show, but also continued his joke writing including one of the most famous lines of early TV history, when buxom bombshell Jane Mansfield was coming on as a guest. It was a big, big booking, and Jack was just thrilled, and he said, I gotta get the perfect introduction, and we wrote introductions, and he didn't like them. And we wrote introductions for Jane again, never done that before, and he didn't like any of them, and say, you guys keep giving me stuff I can't use. You haven't given me lines I could use in three weeks, which was crazy, of course we had, but uh, finally we all got sick of it, and I just went up to the typewriter and wrote, here they are, Jane Mansfield. He continued as a writer on the show as the reins were handed over to Johnny Carson, whom he had actually performed magic with years before when they were both pups. In 1968, he landed a gig hosting This Morning on ABC, but his sense of humor was considered too sophisticated for a morning audience. And the show was moved to primetime, guessing they changed the name then, and eventually to Late Night opposite Carson's Tonight Show. Ever since then, Dick has been hosting The Dick Cavett Show, It has existed in many forms, on many networks, but always retained the name. It started on NBC in 68, did a quick year on CBS in the 70s, then hit PBS, the USA Network, back to ABC in the 80s, then over to CNBC in the 90s. The last incarnation of the show aired on Turner Classic Movies 
Ah, I love some TCM. From 2006 to 2007. And the show's YouTube channel is regularly active, posting so many of his great interviews throughout the years. But what was the Dick Cavett show in any of its incarnations? It was a talk show, but one for, as critics would point out, the thinking man. Dick was good at listening, or at least feigning listening, but his interest always seemed to be genuine. He had a curiosity about him that allowed him to talk to a wide range of guests, and boy howdy, wait till you hear about the guests. And his mostly calm nature allowed him to handle tense and out-of-control situations that might come up. And boy howdy, wait till you hear about some of those. He wasn't afraid of controversial subjects and liked bringing on guests that he knew didn't agree, or sometimes just arranged odd groupings of personalities to create never-before-seen moments. I mean, the Dick Cavett show was crazy. March 27, 1968, Christine Jorgensen, the first widely known trans woman to have reassignment surgery, walked off the show when she felt offended about the nature of some of Cavett's questions about her love life. Cavett spent the rest of the broadcast talking about how he had not meant to offend her. July 7, 1969, Jimi Hendrix plays Hear My Train Comin' with the house band and at one time played the guitar with his teeth. I, I want to clear something with you. I heard you use the expression uh, an electric church as, a, as an ambition you had. Was is this speaking metaphorically or poetically, or do you really want to... Well, let's see, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's just a belief that I have, you know. It's, and it's, uh, we do use electric guitars. Everything, you know, is electrified nowadays, you know. Mm -hmm. So therefore, the belief comes into, you know, through electricity to the people, whatever. That's why we play so loud, because it doesn't actually hit through the eardrums like most uh, groups do nowadays. You know, they say, well, we're going to play loud, too, because they're playing loud. And they got this real shrill sound, you know, and it's really hard. We plan for our sound to go inside the soul of the person, actually, you know, and see if they can awaken some kind of thing in their minds, you know, because there's so many sleeping people. <laughs> you can call it that if you want to. That August, he had his amazing Woodstock show taped like the day after Woodstock ended. His guests, most of them still drunk or tripping or whatever the hell else they were doing after their time on Max Yasger's dairy farm, Jefferson Airplane, Joni Mitchell, David Crosby and Stephen Stills all appeared and performed. Jimi Hendrix was also invited, but he couldn't get there in time. July 27, 1970, Orson Welles turns the tables and starts interviewing Dick. Then in September, my personal favorite, director John Cassavetes and actors Ben Gazzara and Peter Falk, When I was your age, television was called books. came on to promote their movie Husbands, but were blitzed out of their damn minds. They smoked on stage and ignored all of Cavett's questions and just, they ran the show not only off the rails, but off the cliff. Uh, Falk's having a little trouble getting seated. Did, did you call us animals, Dick? He's an animal! <laughs> now, please, please, I... How do you answer that? Go ahead. <laughs> I meant I meant that merely in the most flattering sense. Could I say hello to my mother? Because that was the first thing I... <laughs> Mom, I want to tell you hello. This is like the old days of boxing. And to Sonny and the construction crew at Universal, I say hello. Hi, Sonny. <laughs> what else? We don't know anyone else. <laughs> Is the bar open backstage? I don't understand. <laughs> December 18th, 1970. Retired Georgia Governor Lester Maddox storms off the show after Dick referred to some of Maddox's supporters as bigots. Have no idea what that would be like. What's even crazier is that the other two guests were Truman Capote and the second greatest running back of all time, Jim Brown. <laughs> uh, Maddox did come back to the show one more time, and on that one, Cavett stood up and stormed off the stage as a joke. June 7th, 1971, a dude just flat out died of a heart attack on the show. Publisher J.I. Rosdale, there to espouse the virtues of organic farming. He just kind of fell asleep and was kind of snoring and didn't wake up. Upon realizing what was happening, Cavett asked if there was a, a doctor in the house, which is not something I thought people in real life actually got to say. The episode never aired. February 11th, 1971, Salvador Dali, Lillian Gish, and Satchel Paige. Not three names you hear together too often. That June, he hosted a famous debate about the Vietnam War with veterans John E. O'Neill and John Kerry. 33 years later, when Senator Kerry was running for president, O'Neill founded the organization Swift Boat Veterans for Truth, a political action group that almost single-handedly wrecked Kerry's campaign. By the way, John Kerry was a f***ing war hero, and f John O'Neill. But thank him for his service. Norman Mailer, Gore Vidal, Ingmar Bergman, Angela Davis, Marlon Brando, Catherine Hepburn, Danny Kaye, Robert Mitchum, John Luke Goddard. He did a two-part show about pornography in 71. The first part, he discussed the depiction of oral sex in movies. He covered all of Watergate and had on his show key players in the presidential drama that seems so quaint these days, including Barry Goldwater, G. Gordon Liddy, 
Woodward Bernstein, John Dean, John Ehrlichman, Henry Kissinger, and at the time, House Minority Leader, soon to be Vice President, soon to be President, soon to be Chevy Chase, Michigan Wolverine linebacker, Gerald Ford. And that was just the 70s. Pursuant to our interest, though, is November 25th, 1971, Thanksgiving Day, when Cavett dedicated the entirety of that night's show to Jim Henson and the Muppets. See, we got there. All right, November 25th, 1971, Thanksgiving Day. The show is broken down into 11 segments. Segments are the things that are in between commercials. So I'm going to kind of go a segment at a time and just give, you know, my thoughts, uh, observations, opinions, and hopefully a little trivia and knowledge along the way. The Dick Cabot Show! Tonight, Dick's special guests are Jim Henson with the Muppets, Big Bird, Bert and Ernie, Grover, Kermit, Wolf, Manamana, Oscar, Todd, and special guest star, the Cookie Monster. Ladies and gentlemen, Dick Cabot. So we already start off with one problem. In that opening where it's listing all the Muppets that are going to be on the show, it mentions Rolf the dog. I'm going to spoil something for you. Rolf isn't anywhere in this episode. Rolf isn't mentioned in this episode. Rolf isn't seen or heard in this episode. So strike one, Dick Cabot show. So it's a pretty standard opening of a talk show. The host walks out wearing a suit and he tells some jokes. Because of Thanksgiving, Cabot's monologue has a Thanksgiving theme, and uh, he talks a lot about how depressing it is to be in the entertainment industry working on Thanksgiving. And he starts talking about being lonely and missing your family and comfort, and he keeps using words that, are, that bring about images of warmth, family, and he keeps kind of repeating these ideas, warmth, comfort, you know, things like that. Because while he's talking, from backstage walks our boy Thog. Big blue thog. But Dick doesn't see him. You know, the joke is he's talking, 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 and the audience is giggling and giggling and giggling and giggling. You don't have that sense of being, you know, loved, comforted by, by something larger than yourself. And No, I, I, really, I'm serious. I know you're laughing, but I... Until finally Dick realizes that Thog is behind him. But he doesn't act surprised. He's actually kind of friendly to Thog. Um, makes a few jokes at his expense, and then, of course, he asks Thog for kind of a hug. and. Thog puts his arm around him. He makes some kind of joke about Liza Minnelli. <laughs> um, I don't think it's a mean joke about Liza Minnelli. I just think he's making a joke that this obviously isn't Liza Minnelli. And then, uh, because this is a different time, while still in Thog's embrace, Dick sends us out to a commercial for a perfume called Xanadu. Does he have a favorite spot? Mark it with an X. Mark the spot with Xanadu. The exotic fragrance from Fabergé. X marks the spot. X for exciting. X for explicit. X for Xanadu. Xanadu from Fabergé. X marks the spot. This isn't cool, Whip Martha. There wasn't enough for the both of us, Harold, so I gave you another topping and I took the last of the cool whip. Is it raining? Maybe it's just uh, Mrs. Taylor watering her lawn. What's that? Once you've tried the great natural taste of Cool Whip, it's hard to settle for any other whip topping. You missed it. Non-dairy Cool Whip. You can taste the difference. Look, it's Haley's Comet. So Dick comes back from commercial hawking Cool Whip, and then he talks about how the Muppets are going to be on the show tonight, and then he introduces the first number, which is, I've grown accustomed to your face in color. We've seen this before. Kermit with the blonde wig, York under this kind of fleshy colored mask with big eyelashes and big red lips. This is the sixth time the number has been done on television. Uh, it was first done The Tonight Show in 1956, which actually Jim going to bring up. But it's not a rerun. It's a new performance. But I think we've covered I've Grown Accustomed to Your Face more than once. It's pretty much the stock version. Then, before we meet um, any more of them, I think we should meet the master Muppeteer, if that isn't the wrong word. 
and have a few words with this amazingly creative man, Mr. Jim Henson. So Jim comes out, he's clearly at least a foot taller than Cavett, the lanky Abraham Lincoln frame that we've described so many times. He's wearing black slacks, loafers, and kind of an autumnish patterned woven pullover with a turtleneck underneath. His hair's a little shaggy, and his beard, I'd say, is about medium length. He looks nervous. He looks nervous. Jim, uh, this early in his career, I mean, I say this early, I mean, it's still 16 years in, but but he's still not used to being in front of the camera. He still doesn't like improvising. He still doesn't like having to kind of come up with stuff on the fly. And we're going to see that throughout this whole special. Jim keeps trying to kind of, even though he's not the host, there's many times where he tries to guide the show. He tries to set up the clips. He tries to get Cabot to kind of move on to the next thing. It's interesting seeing a man who's used to being in complete control not being so and trying to maybe suppress his nerves by taking a little bit of agency. Jim sits down and he's like so rare to talk though, he, he immediately jumps into telling you what I just told you. Do you know when we first did that bit? Yeah. Now I've grown accustomed to your face. We did that 16 years ago. The first time we did it, it was the first thing I ever did on uh, network television. And it was the old uh, Steve Allen Tonight Show. The old Steve Allen Tonight yeah, Show? Yeah, 11.30 at night. Yeah. That's amazing. Isn't it? Yeah. He just wants to get that out. It's like it's not part, he just blurts it out almost. He's actually kind of coming on here to sell a few things. And one of the big things he's trying to sell is the frog prints. So Jim brings out Kermit and uh, talks a little bit about the evolution of Kermit and how Kermit doesn't look like he used to anymore. And then he tells Dick about the clip he's going to play from the frog prints. It's ever so jolly being a frog. If you remember the scene where all the, the frogs are trying to tell Sir Robin the Brave, oh, brave Sir Robin. that it's better to be a frog than it is to be a person. I love you, swamp. Oh, there's mud in my blood. Mud, 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 mud. Sing out for the swamp and sing out for the use. The life of a frog is a life you should choose. Sing out for the mud and sing out for the bond. It's ever so jolly. Then discussing the clip, they talk about the use of marionettes and puppets. You know, there's the hopping frogs in the clip, so they use marionettes. And Jim kind of goes a little deep in the woods talking about different puppetry methods, you know. Yeah, we did uh, a lot of the show with marionettes and hand puppets. Mm-hmm. And uh, we do kind of both kinds of, of puppets. Marionettes is anything that's controlled from above? Yeah, the string it, kind. The yeah. string kind are called marionettes. And uh, a puppet actually is any kind. You, know, you can call this kind of puppet or a string puppet or a rod puppet. Yeah. And we do sort of a variety of all the different techniques, you know. But when we were doing frog prints, we, uh, we would use the hand puppets whenever we were shooting close. And then when we'd go for wide shots, we'd work it, you know, with marionettes from a bridge. Up above, a bridge is a uh, thing you stand on. Because for the long shots, you couldn't conceal the men. <laughs> yeah. We don't want to give away all of the magic. Jim doesn't seem sure whether or not he's supposed to answer as Kermit or as Jim, which I think is not unusual for him in situations like this, but it is obvious that he's like... When Jim is talking, Kermit just kind of stares ahead with this dead... I hate to say dead look in his eyes. His eyes are always dead looking, but there is when 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 Jim isn't putting any of his effort, any of his concentration, any of his energy into Kermit. It's the only time I see Kermit not alive. Jim is not putting any of his energy into the frog right now, and you can tell he's just dormant. He looks like he's a you know comatose. We know no matter how much you know about how this works, the minute you see them again, they're completely convincing. It's Sometimes. amazing. Uh, during during rehearsal, it was hilarious here because the. Bert and Ernie were rehearsing, and then the director would say, can you hold on a minute, we've got to set a light. And Bert would say, what? <laughs> I can't hear you. Jim then introduces a second clip from the Frog Prince. You know, we're here to sell something. He talks about the ogre in it, trying to smash the two little frogs, and we get my favorite song from the Frog Prince, Sweetum's Gonna Hit and Smash. And so they go in there, they're, they're gonna cue up that clip. Sweetum's gonna hit and smash Eternal You come back and Jim now has Robin on his hand and he looks like he's getting ready to like do something with Robin and then Cabot holds up a bottle of Corbell champagne and throws to commercial. Robin doesn't show up again. Robin's never performed. Robin doesn't. It's just a little moment where he's got Robin on his hand. Of course, Jim's not even Robin's key performer. Still, it's a, it's a really weird moment. All of a sudden, he's like, what, what is Robin doing there? And he's, then he's poof, he's gone. And Corbell. 
made the same way great champagnes have been made since the 1600s. Their method gives you very tiny bubbles. And tiny bubbles mean a classic taste. You can tell, a good champagne does not have a loud pop when it opens. Ah, see? Corbel Champagne. So we come back from break and Cavett introduces the next number, very familiar, is Menomina. Time for the Jim and Frank show. Pretty standard Menomina. There are a few little wrinkles in it. The staging isn't as dynamic as usual because of the limitations of the set, I think, it feels like. But it's still, Menomina zooming across the screen is still really funny. He just can't do the, he just can't, can't come up vertically. The way that it's staged, there's no way for him to pop up from underneath the screen. So it limits it a little bit, but it's still great. And uh, actually, his little scatting part at the end is completely different from how it normally is. So Jim was having a little bit of fun there, but... And if you've been listening to the show, you know where the song comes from. So Jim comes out from behind the stage, kind of like he would on Sullivan, and... He brings Menomina with him to the couch, plays with him a little bit, you know. Uh, he puts Menomina on Dick's hand and tries to get him to operate it. Dick makes a couple of funny voices. Uh, and then he puts away Menomina and he pulls out Lothar from the great Santa Claus switch. Lothar's a pretty big puppet when you see it against people. It's still a, you know, it's still a hand and rod puppet, but the arms on Lothar are so big and his shoulders are kind of wide. It looks like a pretty huge thing. And then, you know, and he talks about how Lothar's a frackle, and then a couple of frackles pop up behind him and Dick. It's, uh, who is it? It's Droop and Gloat from the Great Santa Claus Switch. And there's a little bit of a thing there, and they talk a little bit about the frackles, and he talks a little bit about the Great Santa Claus Switch. And uh, I think he, again, plugs that it's going to be uh, rerunning. He mentions also that Thog is a frackle. Thog was introduced as a frackle in the uh, Santa Claus Switch, and that reminds dick that it's time for thog's number thog has a number coming up and he's a little nervous but dick's gonna go get him and bring him out and all i can think while i'm watching it is please be real live girl please do real live girl please do real live girl free widow fix you in the itty bitty pool free widow fix you in the mama fishy too swim get your mama fishy swim if you can and if wham and if wham all over the dam that wasn't real live girl I want my money back. What he does sing instead is Three Little Fishies, which is a song from 1939 written by, let me see, Saxy Dowell and Lucy Bender. The song was a number one hit for Kay Kaiser and his band. And uh, country comedy musician legend Ray Stevens would also record it one day. It's just kind of a staple kids song now. And it's Thog, so Thog does his little Thog shuffle when he dances. I love Jerry Nelson's voice, but the Thog voice is just like almost too creepy. But he does his little shuffle around. It's, it's, a, it's a cute little number. And um, then we go to break. This season, ABC presents an additional evening of original motion pictures for television. Movie of the Weekend. Exciting film entertainment. Featuring fine performances by such outstanding stars as Lloyd Bridges, Shelley Winters, Richard Kremer, Suzanne Plachette, Melvin Douglas, Stella Stevens, Richard Boone, Janet Lee, John Marley, Diane Baker, Ed Nelson, and many, many more. This is the place to be, Saturday nights, for Movie of the Weekend on ABC. We come back in and Dick introduces a very good friend of his, uh, Cookie Monster. Cookie had been on the Dick Cavett show before and it had been a big hit. and uh, But it had been a little while, I guess. And so uh, Jim is still in his chair and uh, behind this little stage they have, Cookie pops up, so Frank's back there. And uh, Cookie and Dick have a nice little interaction where... I'm Mr. Cabot. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I haven't seen you in a, in a long time. Oh, yeah, so long. You know why I like to come back here? No, why is that? Because you got cookie for me. You got chocolate chip cookie, right? You know yeah. what? I, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Give me cookie. I, I, Give me I cookie. explain something. What, what, what? We, we forgot. Uh, I don't know how we did it, but it slipped our minds completely to get you anything for this visit. And I just... Uh, 
the guy went out and then he never came back and we don't have anything, uh, any cookies. He starts to have a very visceral reaction when Cabot informs him that they don't have any. He tries to name drop Orson Welles because <laughs> uh, apparently Orson Welles had been on the show and talked about how much he liked Cookie Monster. So he even says like, Oh, anybody else? How about Orson Welles like me? Maybe he got the cookies. He ate a lot, maybe got leftovers. And uh, he's really trying to get a cookie. And so then Cookie uh, notices uh, the boom mic uh, above him, and he goes, bring it lower, bring it lower, bring it lower. And then he grabs it and rips it apart and eats it um, in a pre-scripted gag, of course. You can tell the microphone is phony. Like, it, it looks, you know, it looks cheap and, and, and fake. <laughs> but after he, after he eats the mic, he says, uh, You know, microphones on Carson show. Blech. Nice little reference to Cabot's competition. Jim talks a little bit about the evolution of Cookie Monster and how originally he just ate stuff and now he only eats cookies. But then I forgot, like, Jim's here to plug something else. So, yeah, he's got Frog Prince coming back on TV. But they're also releasing this year the Muppet Alphabet album, which was the first Sesame Street album that had no human cast on it. Uh, it came out during the, the third season. And so he's also here selling that. And actually, they're going to, as we're going to see, they're going to they're gonna sell the hell out of it. <laughs> they're going to they're gonna keep pushing it. Um, and then Dick introduces the first number from it, a very large bird. Big Bird comes out clumsy. Uh, it's, it is Carol Spinney in the costume. And he sings very, very special letter from the album. There's 26 songs on the record, one for each letter, the alphabet, and this is the V song. Uh, the song was written by Jeff Moss, who uh, was, of course, one of the great Sesame Street writers who also wrote Rubber Ducky and The People in Your Neighborhood. And the song is about how it's hard to find words that start with the letter V, but then Big Bird starts listing words that start with the letter V. Now let me think. Hmm. Aha, I thought of some. There's vegetables. That's a V word. There's voice, vacation, and valentine. And and vanish. And mine. But gee, that's about all I can think of. So I guess my song sounds very, 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 After the number, Big Bird is kind of breathless and nervous. He calls Dick Mr. Cabbage, which is a lot like his habit of calling Mr. Hooper Mr. Looper. The Big Bird is really nervous because it's Thanksgiving, because uh, people keep looking at him like he's surrounded with cranberry sauce. This is actually, <laughs> this is like a flash forward to the uh, Muppet Family Christmas, where a certain Scandinavian chef maybe dreams of making Big Bird Christmas dinner. <laughs> so... The Dick Cabot Show with Jim Henson and the Muppets, Big Bird, Bird Looney, Grover, Kermit, Ralph, Phenomena, Oscar, Fog, and the Cookie Monster will continue following station identification. Whatever sign she was born under, she's ready for Aquarius this Christmas. It's Max Factor's new free-spirited fragrance. Surround her with the excitement of Aquarius spray mist. Indulge her with the luxury of Aquarius bath crystals. Give her gifts of Aquarius, the free-spirited fragrance that lifts her from one world into another. Aquarius by Max Factor. Okay, we come back from break, and now the couches are full. So left to right. Left to right, we have Jerry Nelson and Frank Oz, dressed in black. Probably, you know, dressed in all black, head to toe, basically, you know, for, well, probably for backstage reasons, right? And then Jim is next to them. And then on the other side is Dick. And then Carol Spinney, who is wearing a black shirt and a brown ascot and giant orange Big Bird legs. <laughs> he still has the legs on. Frank has a very sweet stash. Very sweet. And yeah, they look, man, they look uncomfortable. They look like, why are we out here? Why should we be out here? I, I know Frank didn't mind this stuff as much, but Jerry looks real nervous. Jim introduces them. He lists the characters that they do, although he, he makes a mistake uh, with Frank. Can I introduce the other people over here? I wish you would. Frank Oz. And Frank has been with me uh, probably longer than any other puppeteer. Eight years? Eight or yes. Nine years. And Frank does Bird and Cookie Monster and Grover and, and Herbert Bird's Foot. No, I don't do Herbert. Not Herbert Bird's Foot. Are you Jim uh, Henson? <laughs> Harvey and East Labras. <laughs> you yes. you don't know each other uh, in real life. No, no we just buy puppets. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's funny. And... Uh, Jerry keeps, like, rubbing his beard and stuff. You know, Frank's kind of forcing a smile. Uh, it's just, I don't know, they, they, they just don't, you know, they just look nervous. They have puppets in their laps, and what they're going to do is they're going to do another number from the, the Alphabet album 
But before they start, Jim talks about the idea of the anything puppets, right? The anything puppets are the, the Sesame Street's version of the whatnots. Jim pulls out uh, an anything that's an orange puppet in overalls, and he talks about how they changed the faces and even said that we, uh, we turned all these into hayseed-type characters. Frank has a blue-skinned bald guy with a red and white checkered shirt who is basically Mr. Johnson, who was a recurring Sesame Street character that was often being tortured by Grover's terrible skills as a waiter. Like, I think in the books he's known as the designation Fat Blue, but this would have been the year he showed up on Sesame Street as well, but Frank is performing him, not Jerry, like he did on Sesame Street, so it goes to show these are just anythings to them. They're just whatever. The characters are what they make of it, right? But he very much looks like a character that's going to be on Sesame Street, at least for a while. Technically, I don't think he ever graduated past anything Muppet, though. And Jerry has a, a blonde guy with a big bushy mustache and overalls. And they sing, P is my favorite letter. Also written by Jeff Moss. I love the letter P because the names of my friends all begin with the letter P. Well, there's Paul and Paul and Percy, there's Peggy and this girl, there's Patrick, that's a boy's name, and Cornelia, that's a girl. So they're sitting on the couch side by side by side, and they each have their Muppet. But when the song starts, it's pre recorded from the record. The camera kind of punches in a little bit and gives them a frame. You see Jerry's face while he's doing the first verse, and his mouth, <laughs> his, his lips are moving, and actually Cavett kind of makes fun of him for that because he's mouthing along with the song. But then when Jim and Frank pop in, you actually don't see their faces during any of this because they are all watching the monitor using the frame that the Cavett show has provided them to do the bit as they each sing a chorus from this song. It's a fun little song, but you really understand that they like they instantly gravitate towards here is our frame, therefore here is our stage. After the bit's over, Jim talks about using the monitor. Working on television like this, uh-huh. when you're working, you're watching the television set, so you're actually performing and you're being an audience at the same time. Yeah. I don't know how you do it. I, you, you watch it's, yourself it's on the screen and you see what you've... You're supposedly watching, but you've already done it by the time you see it on the screen in front of you. Well, not really, because we're seeing the same view that the audience is seeing, you know? So mm-hmm. we're really performing for ourselves. It's kind of a neat thing. Yeah. Yes. And that, you know, no actor can see his performance at the same way the audience does at the same instant he's performing. Mm-hmm. You're the only people in the business who, who see yourselves while yes, you're doing it. Yes, that's true. Yeah. And yeah, Cabot calls out <laughs> calls out Jerry and Jim ribs him a little bit and man, he Jerry, Jerry looks nervous. So when the number's over, you cut back to the wide shot and Carol Spinney's not there anymore. Carol's gone already. And then Dick tries to throw to a commercial, but who pops up behind him? Oscar the Grouch. That explains why Carol had to run around the back and <laughs> put the green guy on his hand. Why are you always so uh, grouchy anyway? I never well, figured that out. Well, uh, most, mostly because we don't have any commercials on our show. Yeah. yeah. Would you like some? I have some Oh, extras. yeah, I love trash. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we only have good ones right here. Oh. Now a word from the STP Corporation. <laughs> <laughs> That's Andy Granatelli, automotive expert and president of STP. You might not expect a guy like Granatelli to worry like everybody else about cold weather starts. But while he's inside burning the midnight oil, out here it's freezing. So Andy uses STP oil treatment, not because he makes it, but because it works like antifreeze for your oil. Helps any engine start easier all winter long. Have your service station add STP to your oil and get the edge on winter. We fade up on Bert and Ernie. Ernie is wearing a beret, sunglasses, and an ascot. Bert is wearing a cape, <laughs> sunglasses, and like a super tall kind of magician's hat. This is very similar to their appearance in episode 102, the Connie Stevens episode. Bert isn't happy that Ernie has made him dress up in this silly way, but Ernie's convinced him that, dude, this is network television. This is the big time. This is Hollywood. We're not peddling kitty stuff anymore. This ain't the street, man. We gotta dress the part. And so he kind of convinces Bert and gets Bert psyched up. And Bert's like, ah, so I gotta start talking like Hollywood hip talk. Dick enters. <laughs> hey, Dick, sweetheart, how are ya? We, we, uh, Ernie and I just flew in from Vegas to do the gig here, and, uh, we wanted to come in here and do a real boffo saco show, you know? 
Now we oh, gotta yeah. wing it back over to uh, Tokyo Coast because we got a gig over there. We got a Zatzak gig up. Wait well, a listen, minute. sweetheart, Wait. we'll do the best we can. Wait a minute. Okay. Ernie, what's, what's, uh, what's with Bert here? Then while Bert's making a fool of himself, Ernie is removing his ridiculous costume behind Bert's back, taking it off. Ernie is such a little son of a bitch. Eventually, Dick asks Ernie what's wrong with Bert, and Bert turns around and Ernie looks perfectly normal. He's like, I have no idea, man. Oh, little brat. So he's basically, he's set up Bert as a joke. He's teasing him. And uh, so it's, it's, it's the exact same thing as the Connie Stevens bit, except for instead of Bert breaking into a big number and embarrassing himself and Ernie kind of laughing, he breaks out some jive talk, some Hollywood slang to embarrass him, and then Ernie laughs at him. Then Bert and Ernie break out into their number. They got the letter L for this episode, and they sing a song called La 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 off the Alphabet album. This one's Joe Raposo. And my oatmeal. Well, that's, that's not exactly what I had in mind there, Bert. Uh, I think you could do some uh, sort of L words that are lilting and lovely. You know, oh, like, uh, la, 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 And la, 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 I like that. Then after it's done, Bert says he's got to go. So Bert ducks below the stage. And Ernie stays for a few more seconds talking to Dick. And then Grover pops up because Frank had to go change puppets. And then after Grover's up and established, then Ernie ducks back down so Jim can go get ready for the next thing. So pretty, pretty smooth. Grover is just really sweet. Apparently him and Dick have had a relationship before. And Dick enlists Grover and Grover volunteers. I actually feel there's a little script mistake here because Dick starts to say, hey, Grover, you know what you can do to help me? And what he's going to say is you can help me, you know, lead out to the commercial break. But Grover then interrupts him and says, I'm here to help you read out to the commercial break. So there's a, both Oz and Cavett knew the premise, but I think they missed the cue on who to, they're both leading, right? Like to think, to put it in dance terms, they're both leading. And so they kind of bump into each other. But then he tells Grover, okay, all you have to do is read those cue cards and take it out the break. And we find out that Grover can't read. So instead, Dick feeds him the lines. We will return. We will return. After this brief. After this brief. Message of interest. Oh, a message of interest. Very good. Thank you. Are you proud? The Bayer man wants you to know about pain relievers. When you say doctors recommend aspirin, what doctors are you talking about? Doctors all over the country. Well, how do you know? Well, we know from national surveys that give an accurate representation of doctors in general everywhere. The most recent survey shows that 98% of the doctors recommend aspirin. 82% take it themselves. Uh, yes, sir. Those TV commercials that talk about the ingredient that doctors recommend, what ingredient are they talking about? That ingredient is aspirin. Sir? Yes. You mean those products contain Bayer aspirin too? No, 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 not Bayer aspirin. Bayer is made differently from all other aspirin. You know, the more you learn about the products you buy, the easier it is to make the right choice. That's why Bayer wants you to know about pain relievers. So now we've got Jim, Frank, and Don Celine out on the couch. Jim introduces Don to Cavett and to us as our master puppet builder who's been with us for 10 years. Frank and Jim are getting into a live hand puppet, and Cavett comments on how difficult that looks, but it's a, it's a live hand puppet, basically a, a whatnot. It'll be Jim doing the head and the, I guess in this one, the left arm, and Frank doing the right arm. And Don talks a little bit about how you know, you change the look of the Muppets by doing their faces, and you can totally tell what they're leading into, which is the Southern Colonel sketch. We've seen the Southern Colonel, or versions of the Southern Colonel many times, where you take this Muppet, this whatnot Muppet, and he looks like a Southern Colonel, and Jim operates him. And then as they, they change the pieces on him, they change his personality of the way he looks, Jim then alters his personality to do this. Uh, again, we've seen this a couple times. I've talked about this sketch a lot. Um, he goes from the Colonel to a younger guy with floppy brown hair that's kind of a teenager. He starts kind of scatting with some jazz. I love watching Jim perform that, by the way. If you, if you watch anything in this episode, actually, you should watch Jim performing the, like, hip teenager, like the way he looks when he's operating him. It's also great to see that Jim and Frank are looking off at a monitor. Like, they have this gaze that they're not looking at Cavett, they're not looking at the puppet, they're not looking at Celine, they're not looking at the audience, they're looking at a monitor. 
and you can tell like exactly where their eyes are focused. But it, then it goes from a teenager, and then they change the eyes, and they add a fedora, and turn the young guy into a, you know, 1940s gangster, uh, which they've done before as well. And then they take the head off, and they put, they they do the thing where they flip the eyes over to change the personality, but they kind of get cut off, so it looks like they're up against time. And Cabot gets them into this thing where they introduce three number films from Sesame Street. Actually, this is, this is a film that is composed of three separate films mm -hmm. that, uh, uh, we have each made, actually. Uh, they're one of the number, three of the number films that we've done for Sesame Street. And uh, these are kind of slightly unrelated to puppets, but we thought you might enjoy seeing. Okay. Yeah, so if you all would like to roll the film. Jim keeps saying things like throughout the thing, like roll the film, roll the tape every once in a while. Like I said, I just think he wants to be, he just doesn't like not being in charge. They, they do um, the number three film, they do the King of Eight, and then the animated Eleven Cheer. After they show them, the Jim mentions that the number three film was made of pieces of sculpture that Frank made, and that the number eight film was made mostly by Don. It was a, it's a stop motion thing, um, and uh, he actually brings out the little puppets, the little stop motion models uh, to show. And then they introduce a new puppet. They introduce Boss Man. Um, Jim says that we first did this guy in Las Vegas last summer. That would have been with Nancy Sinatra in her uh, one woman shows. And then Boss Man comes out. Bossman is, of course, the Muppets' like biggest, biggest rod puppet, biggest puppet maybe. Big, red, feathered with an orange head, twice the height of a man, with a man in black controlling it with rods for the torso and the arms, and with the operator's feet attached to the puppet's feet. And it comes out and dances to kind of a jazzy version of the Sesame Street theme. I wasn't quite sure. Jim reveals that it's Jerry Nelson inside the black outfit. And then they talk about designing it, and they bring out Kermit Love, looking like freaking Santa Claus. Jim introduces him and, you know, says that he's one of our designers, and he does the big Muppets, and he gives him credit for things like Big Bird and Fog and, of course, Boss Man. He seems very nice and shy, although Carol Spinney did say later on that he was, you know, a little grumpy. We haven't talked about Kermit, so I'm going to give you a little bit of a rundown. Kermit Love, 1916 to 2008, was a designer and builder for the Muppets. He started off making marionettes uh, early on and was a costume designer for a lot of Broadway shows, including some for Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater. The first time he collaborated with the Muppets was uh, he helped build the LeChoy Dragon for those Muppets, Inc. commercials. He specialized, like I said, in the full-body puppets, the big puppets. He designed and built Big Bird, the Snuffleupagus, uh, Thig and Thog for the Great Santa Claus, which, while he did a little work on the Muppet show, he was mostly a Sesame Street guy. He worked a lot with Carly Wilcox, and they were kind of the two of the head supervisors over there. He was an early mentor to a young puppeteer named Kevin Clash and helped Clash get jobs on Captain Kangaroo and the Great Space Coaster after those were canceled Sesame Street. We haven't got to Kevin in our story yet, but he's coming, for better and worse. He also created the Snuggle Bear, you know, the fabric softener commercials, so you can either thank him or damn him for that, depending on where that little demon spawn resides in your subconscious. Hi, I'm Snuggle, Snuggly Softy. That's really less expensive. Look, I get towels fluffy, <laughs> blankets cuddly. I'm telling you, the dude looks just like Santa Claus, and actually I found out reading about him, he actually appeared as Santa Claus on the cover of New York Magazine three times. I don't know why. Maybe he made extra cash on the holidays? I don't know. But that's Kermit Love, very important Muppet designer uh, that we hadn't got a chance to talk about yet. And since this is the first time I've seen him on screen in anything, thought it would be a good time to tell you about him. Kermit has done all of our big characters. He, he did yeah. the body of Big Bird and Thog and the great big feather guy here, which is, you know, a great engineering thing. Did any of this, did you have to study engineering to be able to make this? Uh, no. What is your background? Just, in it? just have to study Jim's concepts. Oh, you do? Yeah. Did, were there any bugs in it that you had to iron out? Uh, it, I think yeah. Jerry ironed them out. Yeah. Dude, it's an amazing thing. Yes. The Partridge Family! You know, Mom, if you weren't always busy cleaning the house, you wouldn't be so tired. Each week, the Partridge Family answers the musical question, Can the family that lives together sing together? Tune in, sing along! The Partridge Family! 
back from the break and uh, Dick is in his chair and over his shoulder is a puppet that kind of looks like him. You get the point. It's supposed to be a Dick Cavett puppet. It's not a great likeness, but it's a pretty simple. I'm sure they just threw it together. It's a pretty simple Dick Cavett puppet. But as he he's introducing the next sketch and the puppet is miming along with him. I wonder if that was written down, like they're reading off a cue card word for word, or if the puppeteer is just trying to mouth along with him. It's probably written down. I don't know why it wouldn't be. And he introduces a very classic sketch with visual thinking. So visual thinking, of course, goes all the way back to Sam and Friends. This is with Grump and Kermit. It was the first time that this sketch was done with the updated Kermit, actually. All the others before were pre-collar Kermit. It's pretty much the same sketch it's always been, though. In this performance, Kermit's voice is more like his Salmon Friends voice, deeper, and Jim is kind of doing a Harry the Hipster. Not, maybe not a Harry the Hipster impression, but he's doing a little more of a jazzy voice. I don't know, it's, it's not Kermit's normal voice. He seems kind of stoned and laid back, honestly, which I guess makes sense for the guy who can make jazz appear in the air. Every time the sketch is done, it gets better looking. The animation gets better looking. I'm on record on here. It's not my favorite Muppet thing. I appreciate it. It's wonderful. It's just uh, not my favorite. That's all. And uh, that's all for that segment. Earth 2, a nation in outer space dedicated to peace. But there are others dedicated to destruction. Tony Franciosa. Gary Lockwood. Gary Merrow. Earth 2. So we come back into segment 9, and it's just Jim and Dick again. No puppets anywhere to be seen. For a reason, they start talking about Jim's interest in filmmaking. And they get talking about Timepiece. Uh, I have a short film that I made about five years ago called Timepiece. And we brought a little segment of that, if you'd like to see that. Great. I think right. I once saw Timepiece. I may have. It, what we, it played in New York here for about a year with Man and Woman. Yeah, and, uh, that's where I saw it. It played uh, with that movie. And this is, this is yeah. towards the end of it. It's just a study of contemporary man sort of thing. You know, kind of a fun look at it. If you'd like to roll the film. Okay. Here it comes. Oh, it, oh, it isn't ready. It's, it's a contemporary study of man and woman, you say. <laughs> uh, I mean, if mostly contemporary. Right. Yes, contemporary and, spelled C-O-N-T-E-M. Oh. We have to stretch a minute because the film is. Uh, the film it's a film that's made of uh, a lot of little short segments chopped together, and yeah. it's a, a way of editing that I was enjoying doing at the time. Uh, it's sort of like a kind of train of thought editing. But then the film's not ready, and they have to vamp. So they're kind of ad libbing, trying to get through the next few minutes, talking about editing or whatever. And Jim t- starts talking about two other pieces of tape that they have. And Jim, again, trying to direct, goes, "Well, can we show the tapes now in the film later?" since the film's not ready. (laughs) Like he just, he wants to keep things moving. He is so uncomfortable having to spend these couple minutes trying to stretch with Cabot. All the producers are asking Jim to do is have some idle small talk with Dick until they can fix a technical difficulty. And he's like, can't we just show the other things? (laughs) Like you can just tell, he's like, I don't, this is not where I'm comfortable. Roll the tape. So before they roll the tape, Jim talks about Youth 68, which of course we talked about on the main show. And he also mentions experiment in television. Well, the other two things, actually you could, uh, can we show like one of the tapes first? And then if you have the film, we could do that later. Jim, let the man run his own show. One of the tapes that I have here is um, a piece from an experimental television show called Youth 68, which was Mm -hmm. part of experiment in television, NBC series, uh, on Sunday afternoons, last couple of years. It's a really, a, it's a nice series in that they give you a great deal of freedom and uh, we had great fun combining film and videotape techniques and there's a, this is a chunk here that's a dance piece that we did and we're using two, two film reels and the piece was uh, put together on videotape okay. so you'll, you'll see it's, it's a dance piece about the speed of technology. And then they show a clip of Youth 68 that we did not see before, that I have not watched before. Jim describes it as a dance piece about the speed of technology. It uses two layers of film where you have like a, a silhouette of a dancing man over shots of city life. I really want to see this whole thing. The John Stone directed Youth 68. I really want to see it. So hopefully hopefully, I can get to the Museum of Television and Radio and, and check it out. I really want to see the whole thing. But because all we really watched of it was like the interview sections where they're interviewing the kids. But this is like big, bold, kaleidoscopic impressionistic filmmaking. Jim talks about how they did it. He mentions chroma key a few times, and Dick has really no idea what he's talking about. 
Dick's pretending to have no idea what he's talking about. I'm sure he understands what chroma key means. And then he shows another clip from U68 that I hadn't seen. And he says this part is, this is called Suzanne, and it's a, a dance number using two kind of silhouetted dancers uh, over shots of people in love. But the song is Suzanne. Uh, Suzanne was written by Leonard Cohen. It was actually a poem by Leonard Cohen. And then it was recorded as a song by Judy Collins in that same year, in uh, 1966. And the version they use in Youth 68 is the Judy Collins version. And then the next year, Leonard Cohen would record, would record Suzanne again for his first album and his first single. Suzanne is a big Leonard Cohen song, but in this, it was the Judy Collins version over these kind of shots of people in love while there's dancers kind of superimposed over top of it. This visual stuff is hard to explain. And then finally, they get to timepiece. <laughs> finally, they're like, hey, the film's ready, so they show off timepiece. And they show three minutes of it, uh, you know, which is almost half the running time. They start with the, the scene in the jazz club and the striptease and stuff and uh, kind of go from there and go all the way to him getting Jack Skellington and shot down out of the air. I'm still amazed at how cool timepiece looks and how, how great it is. During the striptease thing, like, the banana got a big laugh. Uh, the cork popping got a big laugh. People got it, you know? They, kn they knew what was up. I really want to watch it again. But yeah, they played a full three minutes of timepiece, which is pretty great. And now a word from our sponsor. If your son or daughter is traveling overseas, they don't need another lecture on drugs. They need facts. Because a lot of young people think the drug laws in foreign countries are not as strictly enforced as the drug laws here. Well, that's wrong. In Mexico, possession can get you a two to nine year sentence. In the United Kingdom, five to seven years. In Italy, three years. And in Turkey, up to life imprisonment for selling drugs. Those are the laws. There's no way around them. Over 700 Americans are already in jail cells a long way from home and nobody can help them. Not friends, not family, not the slickest lawyer in town. The United States government can't help them. So get the word to your son or daughter now. In foreign countries, their drug laws are a whole lot tougher than ours. By the way, that anti-drug PSA was starring Hal Holbrook, who just passed away like last week great actor but yeah that psa was 1971 hal holbrook telling us not to do drugs uh next up dick introduces glowworm this is the next to the last time they're going to do glowworm on tv and the last time they're going to do it with kermit they will do it on the muppet show in season two but it will not use kermit it will use different puppets kermit humming to himself on the ledge and eating one worm and then eating another worm and then eating what he thinks is a worm and getting eaten himself this was on ed sullivan this was on jack parr i mean we know this sketch. We know we know this There's a lesson in that. <laughs> what does it mean? I've often wondered. The lesson is don't eat the little people because the big people will get you. The bad guy wins in the end. <laughs> That's right. right. Uh, they discuss how frantic is, is backstage to perform, and uh, they talk about the problems with operating puppets with several people, and uh, they talk about <laughs> Snuffy as a two-person puppet. I think at that point it would have been Jerry and Richard Hunt. We have a, a two-person puppet on uh, Sesame Street now, a new character called the Snuffleupagus, which is two guys, you know, yeah. walking. Do they get along, the two guys? They have to. They have to. <laughs> we have a brief message. We'll be back. Science says what you don't use, you lose. Is this where we're heading? By the year 2000, will automation and machines do away with our bodies? Where was I? The integral of X times E. Maybe you're taking life too easy. Maybe you should make things a little harder on yourself. Walk instead of taking the bus. Skip the elevator and take the stairs. Swim, play ball, do calisthenics. I'm ready to go, Z12. I'm finished. Use your head. Use your body. I have things to do. I would like to go. Before it's too late. Z-12. Is anyone there? So we come back to say goodbye, and uh, Thog is sitting next to Dick in uh, the chair that Carol Spinney was in. He's basically sitting in, in, in Cavett's lap. And uh, Big Bird is sitting next to Jim, also kind of dwarfing him. Cookie and Lothar are hanging out in the back for some reason, and Dick is showing like a, a toy of Big Bird, basically to show like, hey, you can buy Sesame Street stuff now, I guess. I mean, that was pretty early on in the decision to merchandise Sesame Street, so I guess they were trying to shove that in there at the end. 
This is such a great look at the Muppets at this time in their development. Glowworm, I've grown accustomed to your face, Menomina, visual thinking, the Southern Colonel even, right? Like these are not new sketches. So it's kind of a play in the hits type situation. What makes this special so great is in between, is them sitting around with Cabot, is Frank and Jerry and, and, and Jim trying to have a conversation with Dick Cabot. It's, it's watching them perform without anywhere to hide. It's having Don Celine on the Dick Cabot show, having Kermit Love on the Dick Cabot show. Most of the numbers are recycled. They're done anew for this. Like, just like when he would get hired to do a coffee commercial that wasn't Wilkins. He wasn't willing to just, like, redouble a Wilkins ad, right? And he would reshoot it. And he made sure he had to do that by always putting the name of the coffee, you know, physically in the ad. So all of these are new performances for this show instead of canned video. But they're still singing Satisfaction, Gimme Shelter, Wild Horses, Brown Sugar, and Honky Tonk Woman, whatever. It's like, it's just them. It's them cranking out the hits. But like I said, the great stuff is in between. I definitely recommend checking this out. Your friends probably haven't seen it, <laughs> you know, so that's something. I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode. Uh, there's lots of stuff that we have been watching that there just isn't time enough for Nick and I to cover on the main show. I'm going to try to pick up my pace on doing these bonus episodes and get through some of this stuff. Because again, the mission statement is to watch as much Henson as we possibly can. And while the show is going to concentrate on the major releases, this is an hour and a half of Muppets. This is the This is the length of a movie. I think it's... Part of the mission to also watch this stuff. It's part of our feed of Lunatic Daring. Thanks for listening. At Lunatic Daring on social media, lunaticdaring.com. You know that, but I gotta say it. And uh, take care. A feed of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz and a proud production of Antithesis Audio. Bert, you're not mad at me, are you? No. <laughs>